Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name to each of you. It's good to be together to worship again. Thank you, Lyndon, for that special prayer time. To wish James and Ramon and their children, grandchildren, the Lord's blessing in the days ahead. I've been meditating this past week or two, preparation for this message. I don't remember ever bringing a message on the last day of the year before. You know, New Year's messages are sort of the thing, but what about the last day of the year? What do you share about as we come to the close of another year? I thought there was a song safely through another year, but it kept coming out safely through another week in the songbook, so that didn't quite fit. But anyway, this morning's message, we won't be studying the book of Romans today, but I'd like it for it to be more of a time of reflection and a time of introspection. So what is introspection? It's a reflective inward in examining our own personal lives. So introspection is, is looking in. It's doing an inward inspection and see how are we doing in our lives. So we're at the end of a year. Tomorrow is New Year's, I believe. And I'm glad we have a calendar that works that way. Is there just something special about coming in? We have Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we have the New Year. And there's something about January the 1st that just, I find it kind of invigorating. We get to start over. Well, it's just another day. What if we didn't have time and calendars every day just run together? But I'm glad that we have that. But I hope that our commitments are deeper than just New Year's resolutions. They're commitments to to going closer and deeper with God. And I thought about that a lot the past two weeks in preparation for this. What if this year was our last year? What if, what if the activities of my life in the past 12 months would be what I'm remembered by come? Would we be satisfied with that? Would we feel good about that? The words I spoke, the attitudes I displayed, my reactions, the way I've related to people, would I be satisfied if someone said, this is it, this is what you'll be remembered by for years to come? Or would we look back and say, you know, there's some things I wish I could re-say. There's things I wish I could redo. Most of us probably have a few things like that. But what are we going to do about it? I meant to bring this poem along. I learned a new poem recently. I don't even remember where I got it. I wrote it down on a scratch paper in my chicken house office and it made it to my desk eventually. It goes something like this. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is vile, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. So what will dominate my life in the next 12 months? Well, I feel good about that. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, for our text verses this morning. 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. It's a very short text, two, three verses, verses 6 through 8. Here's Apostle Paul at the end of his life. He's engaging in introspection. We're at the end of the year reflecting. Could we make similar statements as what Paul made here in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter? He'd been writing to Timothy, he'd been giving Timothy instruction on how to live and how to serve and how to lead, and then he reflected to himself, and he has some personal 
closing remarks, but in the transition between the personal closing remarks and his directives for Timothy's life and ministry, he has this to say, and it's very personal. As far as he says, for I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Some scholars think that this may have been some of his last writing before he lost his life or gave his life for the sake of the gospel. And they thought that maybe he had some inkling that he was, his life was closing down as he wrote here in these last few letters to Titus and Timothy. He says, I'm now ready to be offered. Other translations say, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. So this isn't something new for Paul. Paul had written many times in many different places earlier in his letters of the importance of being willing to be offered, to be willing to be poured out, to be willing to live a life that was just given over to, to sacrifice and giving. It's present tense, and it's also progressive action. I'm already being poured out, and I will continue to give my life to be poured out, is what he's saying. So I'd like for us this morning in our introspection in our own lives, ask ourselves the question, can we say the same thing? Can we say that our lives are already being poured out, and in the year to come, we want to be more open to be more poured out, to be laid on the altar? You know, when they poured that wine on the altar for the drink offering, and it ran down over the sacrifice and the wood and out, it was gone. There was no chance to reclaim that and put it back in the bottle. Are we willing to give our lives in that way? And I thought a lot about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, this old man, 116 maybe or whatever, when they went up there on Mount Moriah, and Isaac possibly 16, 17 years old. There's no way that Abraham could have physically made a 16-year-old get up on that pile of wood. I believe that Isaac voluntarily put himself on that altar. Is that the life we're living? Voluntarily laying our lives <clears throat> on the altar and saying we're willing to be poured out in ever greater measures. You know, I got to thinking, I had to change my notes. I went back and wrote, and I said, well, a certain book in the Bible is about being poured out. And then I went back and I changed I said, no, the whole Bible is about being poured out. From cover to cover, the Bible teaches in types and shadows in the Old Testament and direct commandments in the New Testament that we are to give our lives as living sacrifices and be poured out. And Paul said, I'm doing that in an ever greater measure, and that's okay. I'm willing to continue doing that. The last half of verse 6 is a verse that I learned something about recently that really uh, gave more depth to that verse to me in my mind. And the time of my departure is at hand. They said that's a mariner's term. That's the idea of a ship that's been it's setting in port. It's there in the arbor in the port. It's been completely prepared, and it's ready to embark on a journey. And recently read the book Two Sacks. It's a story of Jeff Ishy's ancestors, fictional history, making to America. I encourage you to read it, give you an idea what our ancestors may have faced coming here. But it was really interesting how these ships would come into port over in, in Europe, wherever they would meet to come to America. And they'd be there for just a few days until they'd get all the supplies on and get the repairs made and whatever they needed. And then they'd fill them up with people and they would leave. 
and they had food for a normal journey, but if they hit, if they hit storms, they didn't know. And that's why some of the people starved on the way, because they couldn't haul but just so much. But it was so important that the ship had what it needed for the journey. And Paul is saying, there's where I'm at. I have, I've made preparation for the journey unto death. In your mind, I invite you to think about it. There in the, in the arbor of, of the Middle East, where it was at, they had sailboats then, and the boat was there, and it might have been banging up against the little buoys there on the side of the dock, and the wind beginning to blow, and the, the sails were beginning to billow just a little. And Paul said, that's me. I'm just waiting for the favorable wind. And when God sends that favorable wind, I'm going. I'm ready to go. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Paul was ready to go. Over in Philippians, turn back a few pages to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and begin reading at verse 21. And this is his testimony where he again talks about his desire to depart. The same idea. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul had reached the point in his life that whether God chose to take him or leave him, he was okay with either way. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet I choose not what? I choose I want not. For two, having a desire to depart, to leave the arbor, and to be with Christ, which is far better, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. And here he was saying, God hasn't revealed to me that he's going to take me away. I believe God had revealed to him that he still had more work to do, more suffering to do, because God had told him, Paul, through Ananias, that you will suffer many things for my name's sake. And Paul knew there was more work and more suffering ahead in Philippians. But in, in 2 Timothy, he said, I know it's done. I'm ready to go. And in verse 7, he amps it up and starts to look back on his life. He said, I fought a good fight. Have we fought a good fight? Was there, could, could Apostle Paul have at any point in his life made that statement? I fought a good fight and I'm ready to go. No. He made other statements like, I'm chief of sinners. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. We go back to Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, and there we see Paul standing uh, with the crowd who was listening to Stephen and then stoning Stephen. We see Paul standing there, and they took their outer garments off and piled them at his feet as they cast those stones at Stephen, and he was giving consent to what they were doing. That was the Paul of then. And he wasn't ready to say, my departure is at hand. I'm ready to meet the Lord. God had much to do in his life to bring him to that point. It says there in chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul was there giving his approval of Stephen's death. And that day great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And you know the rest of the story. He ended up getting letters of authority to go from Jerusalem down to Damascus. And on the way, he was planning to go there and bring followers of the way back to Jerusalem for trial and persecution. And on the way, the Lord met him on the street. 
And a bright light shone in his face. And as he journeyed there, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around him a light from heaven, a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and shall be told thee what thou must do. That was the turning point in Paul's life. That's when his ship turned from going against Jesus Christ and fighting against followers of the way to turning and following God. And I believe the turning point was when he said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Paul didn't intend to go away from to be working against God. He thought that he was serving God and pursuing the law in, in the Old Testament. And he thought he was doing God's will. But the Scripture says he had a zeal, but his zeal was misdirected. But when God got a hold of him through the Jesus Christ and the light from heaven, which was obviously uh, a glimpse of the glorified Jesus, because he said later he'd seen Jesus, he, he was trembling and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So another question for us to entertain this morning, have we ever come to that point in our life where we're just at the end of ourselves and fell before God and said, God, what will you have me to do? God, I'll follow you wherever you take me. Have we reached that point in our life? Are we entering into the new year with that view of God's ownership on our lives, of being poured out on the altar, it being available for Him? It was through the crucible of suffering. A crucible was the container in which they would put precious metals and things in that day and heat it up to, to get the impurities out and to change it. And it was through the crucible of suffering that Paul was conformed to the image of Christ. I invite you to turn over to Philippians chapter 3. And Paul has to say there in that passage about his desire to continue to be changed through the crucible of God's working and the pain in his life that God used to conform him more and more to the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 and verse 4, Therefore I might have confidence in the flesh. If any other man that he were of might, he have, might have trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised of the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tower of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. Made a mental note of that. That will fit good in Romans. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, Paul had a singular devotion in his life after his conversion. I believe he had a very singular devotion before his conversion too, but now he had a different devotion. And notice his singular devotion to Christ or the way of Christ. He says, Doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered all things, suffered the loss of all things, do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now notice his singular drive. 
and to be found in him not having my own righteousness. So that was a desire to have the righteousness that comes by faith and to know him, Jesus Christ, in an infant way, to know the power of his resurrection, to know fellowship of his suffering and be made conformable unto his death. Paul wrote in Romans 5, where that except we die, except we identify with the death of Christ, except self is laid on that altar and poured out where it cannot be recollected, be made conformable to his death, and to know the suffering that comes with that. A text message from someone recently that was traveling and ran into a lot of issues trying to get to where he was going. And he said, that's just part of suffering for the cause. But if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul was looking for that transformation where we already looked at his ship was ready to depart. And he wanted to pass over to the other side and experience the fullness of the resurrection of the new body in the presence of Christ Jesus. And he says, I'm not there yet. I've not attained. I'm not perfect. I'm not mature. But I follow after that, I apprehend that for which I'm also apprehended of Christ Jesus. And I like that verse. He's saying, I don't know to what depth or degree that Jesus Christ has reached into my life and redeemed it or what all the purposes are. I don't know that. I'm not realizing it in its fullness. But that's what I want to realize. That's what I want to appropriate. That's what I want to be my life. Just completely sold out for Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm reaching forward to those things. I've not apprehended it yet. I've not, I've not gotten a hold of it. But I'm reaching forwards for whatever lays ahead. And I press toward the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And in verse 15, he makes it personal for us. And let us therefore, as many as be perfect or mature, or working towards maturity, be thus mine, and if anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal that even to you. Have we exhausted the possibilities of what God can do through our lives, or are we just scratching the surface? Think about that. Are we exhausting and just giving God the freedom to work through our lives to the degree that he would. We had a great Sunday school lesson this morning. I'm looking forward to the rest of it next Sunday. Jesus, every opportunity, ever no, let me say that a different way. Every interaction he had, every meeting he had was an opportunity to touch a life for eternity. Is that how we're living our lives? Have you ever read a little book, The Prayer of Jabez? He prayed that God would expand his influence. Do we live that way every morning? God, who are you going to send into my life today that I can share the love of Christ with? Or I can share a word of encouragement? Or I can do something to challenge them, encourage them, point them towards Christ, whatever it is? Is that the way we're living? Are we reaching forward and saying, God, whatever you have today, I want to take a hold of it and do it for your honor and for your glory as we're poured out in an ever-increasing way on the altar of God's love and will for our lives. Possibilities of God in our lives, or are we just scratching the surface? Do we have an insatiable hunger for more and more of the things of God and His life in us? Is the Word of God alive? Does it challenge us? Are we inspired by it? Are we allowing the Spirit to open our eyes to follow Him in an ever deeper 
in more meaningful way in our lives. That's why at the end of his life, Paul could say, I fought a good fight, because he was fighting right after he was converted and after he was changed. Are we hungry for more of Jesus? I'll tell you a story that really blessed us. Recently, we had a booking for our Airbnb. The, last main, the man's last name was Hildebrand, so that was exciting. That's what Wilda Showalter's last name was, Grandma Wilda. So we uh, messaged back and forth a couple of times and told him we was interested in meeting him because we had relatives. My wife and my children are also Hildebrands. And uh, anyway, they got there, and uh, what was interesting, they booked from Vietnam. They live in Vietnam. He grew up in Bridgewater. His dad was a brethren pastor, uh, Brian Hildebrand, I believe, local uh, brethren pastor. And his company he works for stationed him, or he works in the port there in uh, Vietnam. There's another lovely little lady that worked there. They got married. She's Vietnamese, and they have three beautiful children. Anyhow, they were there, and we went to visit them and I was trying to figure out if we was connected and everything. And after a while, he told me, he said, my wife is a young Christian. He said, she's in instruction class. She's preparing for baptism. And then we all looked at her, and she's a beautiful woman, just glowed over, and she said, I'm hungry. That was her testimony of her relationship with Christ. I'm hungry. And her English was somewhat broken, but she let us know that her life is about satisfying her hunger for Christ. Is that how we live here in America? You know, she's from Vietnam. It's a socialist-slash-communist country where uh, most people are Buddhist. Uh, but she come to know the Lord, and she says, I'm hungry. And uh, anyhow, after she found out we were Christian, she couldn't stop hugging my wife and holding her hand. I understand that, but... Anyway, what I found interesting was when I went home and when I went home and uh, got to reading, I thought, well, I want to know about the culture of Vietnam. And it said, well, if you travel to Vietnam, be careful. Don't touch people and don't make a lot of eye contact because that's offensive in their culture. Well, she was the exact opposite. So, see, Christ had totally transformed her life and her culture. And uh, so, anyhow, and the great thing is they plan to come back every six months. Don't tell Gerald's. They used to stay at Gerald's house, but they wanted a bigger house. So, anyway. So, yeah, that was just a real blessing to meet somebody like that that is just new to Christianity, and she said, I'm hungry for more. Reminded me, as we visited with her, I kept thinking about other families. We visited their family. I kept thinking about a couple of passages in the book of Revelation where she defied her personal life and testimony defied the accusation that the angel of the Lord brought against some churches in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, Unto the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven candlesticks. I know thy works and labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience, for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. These sound like some pretty good Christians. They were kicking out the false teachers. They were persevering. They were just doing, it looked good. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. I believe that lady displayed for us what first love looks like. Have we left our first love? 
Do we have that kind of hunger? Yeah, it's a challenge to me. Maybe I have at times left my first love. Do I tell the strangers I meet how hungry I am for more of Jesus? Are we complacent? And we became like the church over in chapter 3. Now, I'll continue reading here in chapter 2. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. The angel of the Lord is speaking to them there in the church at Ephesus and say, Remember, you used to have that kind of fervent love. Remember where you've fallen from and repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove that candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. See, the Scripture doesn't give us an option for lukewarm Christianity. It says, He will remove us from our place. Chapter 3, verse 14. Enter the church of the angel of Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, thou art neither hot nor cold, and I word that thou were hot or cold. See, God would prefer to have us cold and indifferent than to be lukewarm. But he really wants us to be hot and on fire for him. Yes. What was the problem? Then because thou art lukewarm and neither hot and cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I challenge us not to equate material prosperity with spiritual blessing. There's many people who have much material prosperity who know nothing about Christ. Do not equate spiritual or material prosperity with spirituality. As he said, these people said we're rich, we have everything we need, we don't need anything. And he said, you don't realize that spiritually you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I counsel thee to buy gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness may appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest not see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come unto him, will sup with him, and he with me. And him that overcometh, I will grant to set with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath the ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And that concludes uh, the direct messages to the seven churches. He says, remember, listen, pay attention to what is being said there to those churches. So what are the keys to overcoming the drift towards spiritual complacency in our lives? See, complacency is very different than contentment. Contentment is being satisfied with what God is bringing into our lives. Complacency is being satisfied with what we have in our lives and not wanting what God has for us. The key, I believe, to overcoming spiritual complacency is living in the fear of the Lord. And I already brought one message on that recently, but we didn't near exhaust it. In the book of Job, Job 28, 28, the man said, and I'm not sure which man it was, it may have even been the Lord, Behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 19, enduring forever, the judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they of gold. Much fine gold, sweeter are they than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 34, 11, come ye children, hearken to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now think about the attributes of having the fear of the Lord as I read this. 
I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips, that they speak no guile. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have they that do his commandments, and his praise endureth forever. Proverbs 1, 7 through 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. Proverbs 2, 1 through 11. My son, if thou wilt receive my words, and hide my commandments with thee, Thou shalt incline thy ear into wisdom, and apply thy heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and lifteth up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as hid treasures, then shall I understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom, and out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment. He preserveth the way of the saints." When thou understandest righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, and every good path, when wisdom entered into thy heart and knowledge is pleasant to thy soul, discretion shall keep thee and understanding shall preserve thee. So the fear of the Lord helps us determine what is right and wrong. The fear of the Lord opens the avenue for the, for the wisdom of God to come into our lives. And the fear of the Lord brings protection into our lives. Proverbs 8 well, I said here, the fear of the Lord and wisdom are inseparable. Proverbs 8:13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogancy, and every evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 9:10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 14:26. The fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction of wisdom before honor is humility. Proverbs 16.6, by mercy and truth iniquity is purged. By the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord tendeth life, and he that hath it shall be satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Protection. There's 27 passages in the scripture that extols the benefits of living in the fear of the Lord. Now we come into the New Testament for the last one. We've seen the protection there in the ones I just looked at. Now let's notice how fear of the Lord affects the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Acts 9.31, And then the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Samaria and were edified, were built up, were growing. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. I see here that a church that walks, a body of believers that walk in the fear of the Lord will be edified, they'll be multiplied, they'll be built up, and they'll be walking together in unity. So I have a question. Did Paul learn something about the fear of the Lord as he lay there on the road between Jerusalem and Damascus, blinded by the light of Jesus Christ? Did he learn a few things while he laid there on the road and waited? Or the three days that he fasted waiting for Ananias to come down to the house and baptize him so he'd receive air, lay his hands on him and baptize him so he'd receive his sight. I believe the reason Paul could write so eloquently about the love of God is because he came to understand the fear of the Lord. I believe the two are inseparable. I do not believe we can truly experience the love of God without also walking in the fear of the Lord. 
received this book for Christmas, just starting into it. It's called The All of God, An Astounding Way That a Healthy Fear of God Transforms Your Life. I'd like to read a little bit from it. Verse 16, in the same way, limiting holy fear to only a reverent worship can cause us to miss the mark and be misled. Let's draw up an outline. We will later add color to the teachings. Before we begin, I want to warn you that defining holy fear, you will hear words that could be frightening, but I assure you that the opposite is true. Stay with the message through its entirety, and you will discover that holy fear is a gift of love and protection from our Creator who deeply cares and longs for us. There are many New Testament scriptures we can start with, but I believe this one sets the tone. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. If you look closely, you observe the two terms that are referenced, reverence and godly fear. Immediately, this shows that godly fear cannot be limited to only reverence, otherwise the writer is just repeating himself with the second term. They're not only two different words in English, but two different Greek words also. Reverence is an excellent translation of the first word. The complete word study says, profound, adoring, and awe, respect. I love those four words joined together. Stopping to ponder each one takes our understanding to another level. The second term, godly fear, carries with it the meaning of awe. For all's definition, I looked at the original 1822 edition of Noah Webster's Dictionary, and here's what I found. Fear, dread, fear and dread inspired by something great, terrific, to strike with fear and reverence, to influence by fear, terror, or respect. It reminded me, Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Through the Greek dictionary uses these words, remember, holy fear has a drawing and not a repulsing effect. So we must ask, is there really a healthy aspect to these, aspect to these words? I believe the Scripture shows there is. We will see this as we add collar. To fear God is to reverence and be in complete awe of Him. To fear God is to hallow Him. Hallow is defined as great respect. To fear God is to esteem Him, respect, honor, and venerate. Adore Him above anyone or anything else. When we fear God, we take on His heart. We love what He loves. We hate what He hates. Notice is not to dislike what He hates, but rather hate what He hates. What is important to God becomes important to us, and so important to Him is not, what's not so important to God is not so important to us. To fear God is to hate sin. To fear God is to hate injustice. To fear God is to depart from evil in every sense, thought, word, action. To refrain from speaking deceitfully. It will not say or put on appearance that is untrue to one's heart and thoughts. It keeps our outward behavior congruent with our inward thoughts, motives, and beliefs. To fear God is to walk in authentic humility before God. To fear God is to give Him praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and worship that He deserves. To fear God is to give Him all that belongs to Him. To fear God is to tremble before Him in wonder and awe, and to give His Word and His presence our full attention. To fear God is to obey Him, not just to desire an inward force, determined to carry out His will no matter the cost. We regularly eagerly, willingly, and immediately obey. And if we don't see a benefit or it doesn't make sense, we continue to carry it out anyway. To fear God is to abstain from any form of complaining, murmuring, or grumbling. Grumbling. <laughs> grumbling. To fear God is to respect, honor, and submit His direct and delegated authority. It means to obey delegated authority with only exception being if that authority tells us to sin. The fear of the Lord shapes our intentions, thoughts, words, and actions. And I noticed that those those explanations that he gives here at the onset of this book is simply explaining the verses that we've already looked at that I uh, picked up. The fear of the Lord is a starting place for an intimate relationship with God. We become His friends, and His secrets are made known to our hearts. 
The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. He gives us foresight and clear divine direction. The fear of the Lord is how we mature our salvation and conform to the image of Christ. The fear of the Lord is clean. It produces true holiness. To abide in the fear of the Lord is to secure an eternal legacy. The fear of the Lord produces confidence, fearlessness, and security. It swallows up all fears, including the fear of man. The fear of the Lord gives us identity and makes us productive and empowers us to multiply. The fear of the Lord provides angelic protection, fulfilled desires, enduring success, nobility, influence, longevity, productive days, enjoyment of life, happiness, pleasure, honor, healing for our body, and much more. The fear of the Lord endures forever. It will never fade. The fear of the Lord is a treasured gift from our Heavenly Father. Sorry, I read so much. But the fear of the Lord, I believe, is foundational to a good life in a good year in 2024 if we're willing to walk in it. You see, a reverent awe for God dispels the fear of mankind. I don't believe that we can fear God and live in fear of mankind at the same time. But perfect love, we talked about this in the last message on fear, perfect love casts out fear. To love God completely is to fall before Him in reverence. thought about that time where the prophet was it Elisha? Yeah, it was Elisha in 2 Kings 6 where the army came and surrounded where he was at and, and his servant came in and was feared and said, Master, what shall we do? And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes. And he looked out and the mountains were full of the angels and the army of God and the fiery chariots. Has the power of the angel of the Lord diminished? No. We have that same or around us if we're walking in the fear of the Lord today. So what do we have to fear? Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, was the conclusion. Things not to get involved in in 2024. Remember, we are children of the King. We're aliens in this, we're alien residents on this earth. And I want to encourage you, this year is an election year, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also. People, don't get involved even emotionally because God has it all figured out, and it's going to be fine. I'm doing a study for something else now about the early Anabaptists, and I was reading again an Anabaptist outline recently, and they wrote there that they related to government in the same way, whether it was benevolent or tyrannical. They always related. They said in that time period they related the same, because to become involved in politics was to leave the perfection of Christ. To leave the perfection of Christ. And I want to tell you all a little story. You may already know it. About what happens when we leave the perfection of Christ to change society through politics. Before 1969, no state in the United States of America had what was called a no-fault divorce law. No fault was the person could pursue divorce without having grounds or a reason for it. So they had to come in and they had to go to court and they would get real ugly. And, and anyhow, believe it or not, California was the first state default divorce law where you get divorced without, uh, without grounds for it or convincing a judge. They only want to guess uh, who signed that bill. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan championed the no-default divorce bill. Now, let me say this. I respect Ronald Reagan. I respect his office of president, and I liked his personality. But these are stories you don't always hear 
uh, just to think about. Yeah, Ronald Reagan had went through a divorce. He was in his second divorce. He'd actually switched parties, became Republican in 62, signed this in 69, and in the next 10 years, it flowed across the United States, and within 10 years, I think every state had followed suit and signed a no-fault divorce law. Before that law went into effect, about 11% of the children in the United States were living in one-parent homes. By the end of the career the said president, it was 50% of children were living in one-parent homes. What happened? I remember as a little boy, I was about seven years old, went with my dad to Hinton Market and they had professional loafers back then, and uh, we went in there, and they were talking about the election that was coming up. This would have been 70, this would have been November 75, October, November 75. And I remember one old man said, ah, I just know all the women are going to vote for Jimmy Carter because he has that big old toothy grin. And I don't know why I remember that. I was about seven years old. And uh, he won in 76. And uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. and uh, Pat, was his face, and all them were concerned about the way it was going. And they formed a coalition called the Moral Majority. Some of you older ones remember that, younger ones don't remember that. They formed a coalition called the Moral Majority, and they worked really hard to rally the evangelical churches to support their cause. You see, they had a problem. Earl Carter, president, was Southern Baptist, and he was from the South, and there was a Bible Belt, and they needed the votes from the Bible Belt to swing it the way they wanted it to go. In fact, is some secular historians say that they admit they used false propaganda to win the evangelicals over. But the evangelicals uh, did. They rallied behind uh, Jerry Falwell and Ronald Reagan uh, did win. They feel like the evangelical Christian vote was what helped him to win in 1980. He came into office and he began to do a lot of good things for the, for the secular world, the military, the interest rates came down. Um, he did a lot of good things. But secular historians looking back it said, it's interesting that during that time period, the Christian church fell silent on the issue of divorce and remarriage. You see, they had a problem. They chose a man to champion their cause, but he was also a champion in cause of no-fault divorces because he had experienced the same thing in his life. So in the next however many years, the evangelical church uh, accepted divorce and remarriage uh, and, and began to look the other direction. And so secular historians look back on that and they say during that time period there was a dramatic increase in the poverty level in those areas as women and children were abandoned by their husband and had to make it on their own. Okay. Religious historians look back on it and say that's when the church went silent on divorce and remarriage. And now, the, statistically, there's no difference between the evangelical church and, the, and the, the unchurched people in the divorce and remarriage statistics. So I say all that, dear people, to say this. The church always loses when we harness ourselves to politics. So think about this. A thousand years from now, a thousand years from now, when everyone who's alive or will live or whatever have already been in eternity for 900 years, 
What's going to matter the most? Here's a material prosperity that came out of that, or the endless ages of eternity of all the broken homes that came out of those eight years as America transitioned during that time period. What's going to matter the most in eternity? And I challenge us, think beyond the present. Think beyond the present. See, in 2016, Jerry Falwell's son, Jr., also endorsed a candidate that wasn't in his second marriage, but his third, and rather than staying with his wife, he had, he had bragged about the escapades around the world of promiscuity with supermodels. And I ask you, dear people, think about this. Will secular historians look back 20, 30 years from now and say, what happened in Christianity that we begin to endorse men abusing women and girls? Will that happen? You see, we become like our heroes. And if our hero is engaged in something and the church has begun to follow, they can't speak out on the subject anymore. So, I'm sorry for getting down this road. I just want you to think, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you, it just burdens my heart deeply. I always look at life from the viewpoint of, of history. And I see dear people that I grew up with that I know that I care about deeply with their wristbands and their bumper stickers on their vehicles promoting a political, political candidate. And I just, my heart just burns with them. I say, dear people, do you have any idea what you're setting yourself up for in your children? The people we make heroes, we become like them. And I bet if you'd told the evangelical church in 1979 when they was forming that coalition that their divorce rate would, hit, would go from about 20% to 50% in a few years, they wouldn't have believed you, but it did. So, dear people, the year ahead, don't leave the perfection of Christ. We have a message, and the church is the foundation of a strong society is a Christian home. A father, a mother, children reared in the fear of the Lord, and that is of more value than anything else that can be obtained politically or any other way. Because when the church gets involved in politics, the church always compromises and the church always loses. Back to 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. <clears throat> I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not unto me only, but to them also that love his appearing. Are we looking forward to his return? Are we just waiting for his appearing and saying, God, I'm ready. My ship's ready to, to leave the port. My ship is ready to go. Everything is in order. I invite you for homework <laughs> Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That is the call of our life. 2 Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, when we come to know Christ, everything is changed. And from that point forward, the goal and the drive of our lives is to be a minister of reconciliation and reconcile lost souls to a holy God through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. May God add His blessing.